0: everybody what's up everybody welcome back to another episode of the lights out podcast i'm your host josh as always i'm joined in the studio by my producer joel and today we have a very very intriguing yet very dark episode for you on a demonic possession of a woman named julia who also went by the name the satanic queen This is a very interesting episode because this case comes from an individual by the name Richard Gallagher. And Richard is an Ivy League board-certified psychiatrist who consults on demonic possession cases. And what's interesting is that a lot of people are very skeptical of demonic possessions because a lot of people don't believe in demons or in the idea that demons can potentially possess somebody and cause them to do things that oftentimes don't look humanly at all i mean they look like something else is inside of them and basically richard gallagher he is brought in on cases from the clergy so the clergy of the catholic church to assist them in trying to figure out if that individual is mentally ill as some sort of mental disorder which is causing the behavior that they're observing, or if in fact this individual is possessed by something that is not of this world. So we're gonna take a look at the life of Richard Gallagher a little bit, and there's definitely some very interesting clips of him throughout this episode that will help just bring a little bit more context, especially for those that are skeptical of this sort of thing. And honestly it's 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 terrifying to hear about some of the things that experienced and witnessed firsthand, and if you're one of those skeptics out there when it comes to demonic possession, this episode might change your mind. But this episode of the Lights Out podcast is brought to you by Rothy's Babel Purple and Every Plate. So Dr. Richard Gallagher grew up as a Catholic in the suburbs of New York City, and at an early age, he thought things like demonic attacks and paranormal possessions were just topics for tabloids, and he really didn't put too much thought into it. He grew up in the mid-1900s in a time of rationalism and he saw demons more as Halloween costumes or as many of us think of them, just fictional characters rather than actual threats. But after graduating high school, he went on to study at Princeton where he became fascinated with language and psychology and he wanted to dive deeper into the mechanics of the human mind and how they influence our perceptions of reality. As he studied the physical and medical aspects of human life, The realm of spirits, demons, and paranormal events were far outside his day to day thoughts. But his skepticism first began to change in college when his brother John met a local witch outside of Princeton. And she claimed to be a good witch. And he contacted her about warts that he had had on his hands ever since he was a teenager. And she promised him that she could cure him. And she told him about a type of folk healing that she was capable of. She ordered John to go to a bridge on the outskirts of town say a short incantation, and then throw three beans over his shoulder into the river. The next day he woke up, but the warts were still on his hand. And after thinking about it, he figured the problem was that he really didn't believe it would work in the first place. So he went back to the woman and said he would try again, but this time he would truly believe. So he went through and did the process again. And the next day he went to meet Richard, and the warts on his hands, had disappeared. At first Richard didn't believe it, but it sparked an interest in the idea that some cases have no physical explanations, like his brother's warts, and that maybe they might have been cured by some type of healing beyond scientific explanation. Around this same time, Richard caught wind of Aldous Huxley's book, The Devils of Loudoun. It told the story of a group of nuns in the seventeenth century, and they lived in a typical convent which was quiet and modest until a vivid ghost of a male priest appeared to them in the middle of the night. He appeared with an angelic glow around him and he looked peaceful and holy like he had been sent by God. All the nuns gathered around him and they thought he was an angel that came down from heaven. But when he opened his mouth, the most vile words came out. His eyes turned black and his voice became raspy and dark. He then commanded the nuns to perform sexual acts with each other and him. Suddenly the nuns were overcome with a strange paranormal energy and they threw their arms in the air and convulsed with violent movements while screaming in tongues. They spoke in languages they didn't know as they sexually thrusted their hips in the air. They couldn't explain why and they couldn't stop themselves either because some sort of unseen power had taken control of everyone in the room. When the strange scene finally ended, the nuns composed themselves and privately talked about what had just happened. The leader of the convent, Jean de Agnes, eventually blamed a local priest for the strange behavior that had possessed him that night. His name was Father Urban Grandier, and he was a parish priest in Loudon, and he was known for his lewd behavior with other women. Gossip had spread around town that he had a child out of wedlock. He was also found guilty of immorality decades before but his friends in high politics helped him from being imprisoned. There were also rumors around town that he practiced black magic and worshiped demons. The leader of the convent also accused him of making a pact with Satan himself. But before anything could be done, the strange events at the convent escalated. At night, the nuns would violently convulse out of nowhere. Their heads would wrench back and forth, hitting their chests and their backs, and their necks looked like they were completely broken. They would lay on their stomachs and grab their feet behind their backs while screaming in different languages. Their eyes never blinked, and their tongues lurched from their mouths, colored black and covered in pimples. The 27 nuns who lived there reported instances of speaking in tongues, levitating, superhuman strength, moving objects with their minds and being able to access people's deepest and darkest secrets. Soon local priests intervened and began investigating the possessions. Countless witnesses watched in horror while the nuns were taken over by some unseen force. As the local priests stood and watched, sometimes the nuns would approach them and grope them inappropriately. Other times they would offer to have sex with them. Over the next several weeks, nearly 7,000 spectators watched as several exorcists barged into the convent and tried to force the demonic possessions out of the women. But it had almost no effect on them, and with no other options. Church leaders ended up arresting Father grandier They were so desperate for a solution, he was imprisoned and tortured as they tried to get him to confess to his evil rituals that caused the possessions. And while he was imprisoned at the Castle of Angers, they saw that Grandir had marks of the devil on his skin. They also found a pact with Satan scrawled across his body and signed in blood... It said that Grandir recognized Satan as his lord and master. He renounced every other god, Jesus Christ, and all other saints, and he even promised to give up his entire life for Satan. But even after the discovery of the pact, Grandir wouldn't confess. So they continued to torture him and broke both of his legs in the weeks before his trial. When his trial first began, many of the possessed nuns came to defend him, even Jean, the leader of the convent, who was the first to accuse him. She cried for Grandir to be freed, and she even whipped herself in public and threatened to kill herself if they didn't let him go. She confessed that she had framed him and was put up to it by Grandir's political enemies. Investigators also suspected that it was Jean who wrote the pact across Grandier's body. Also, some of the nuns had broken down crying during their exorcisms, claiming they had been coached on what to do and that it was all an act. Still, the court saw this as the devil trying to manipulate the case so that Grandier could be set free, and the court would no longer tolerate anyone who would defend him. Many that wanted to defend him ended up fearing for their lives and fleeing France, but with everything against him, Grandier still refused to confess. No matter how much they tortured him, he wouldn't admit to performing dark rituals, but in the end, they didn't even need a confession. On August 18th, 1634, he was found guilty of magic and causing demonic possessions. He was sentenced to be burned alive at the stake, and on the day of his execution, they refused to let him speak, fearing he would try to perform black magic, so they put a gag in his mouth and quickly tied him to the stake. When they ignited the torch and set him on fire, he burst into a bright ball of flames, and a flight of pigeons gathered around him. Many believed they were a troop of demons that came to honor him in his last moments. When his body had completely burned to the ground, his friends and followers collected his ashes and stored them as spiritual relics. The church was relieved he was finally gone, but even after his death, the madness didn't end. Other priests claimed that their bodies had been taken over by demons and their health rapidly deteriorated and many of the nuns continued convulsing and screaming like they were possessed. Others were terrorized by nightmares, and it seemed like the demonic energy still had a strong hold on Loudoun for many years to come. This was one of the first possession stories that caught the attention of Dr. Richard Gallagher as he studied at Princeton. Many believe that there are several realistic answers to what happened in the quiet French town in the 17th century. But many also believe that this was one of the first well-documented cases of real demonic possession. So the story of the nuns really fascinated Richard. But he was busy with his medical education, so he didn't spend much time thinking about it. Years later, a local professor asked Richard if he had ever heard of the event. Richard said that he had, and the professor went on to express his beliefs on the topic, which surprised him. The idea of demonic possession in the scientific field was taboo, and not many educators talked about these things in their day-to-day lives. To talk about it seriously risks their reputation, but the professor believed in the story. He thought that not all the women were possessed, but there still might have been some form of demonic phenomena at play, like oppressions or vexations. Richard was interested in the topic, but he was too concerned with his medical career to look into it any further so he went back to focusing on his work. During his medical training at Yale, he dug into the mystery of the human psyche. He wanted to learn more about the mysteries of the human spirit that couldn't be calculated on paper. By the time he graduated as a resident from the Yale program, the popular story of The Exorcist had just hit the mainstream. The book had become a blockbuster hit, and many fans began digging into the real-life story that it was based on. As Richard's interest in the subject grew, he couldn't help but look into it. The real-life story was about an anonymous boy they called Robbie Mannheim. Robbie was a 14-year-old boy raised in the Lutheran faith. As an only child, he often didn't have anyone to play with growing up besides his Aunt Harriet. Harriet was a devout spiritualist, and one day she introduced Robbie to a Ouija board. Ever since that day, a paranormal energy seemed to follow Robbie wherever he went. Similar to the movie... Poltergeist activity began happening around the house, like objects flying around the room or unexplained scratches appearing across Robbie's body. His bed vibrated at night, and furniture moved across the room. Robbie's pastor, Luther Miles Schultz, invited Robbie to stay with him, and he witnessed these events for himself. And while he stayed there, Robbie's condition worsened. While at the pastor's house, 47 other people had witnessed Robbie's possession. His voice used to be gentle and sweet, but later became coarse and vile. He would screech about how he hated religion and God. He even spoke in Latin, which was a language he didn't know. He would also fall into trances and violently convulse in his bed. As his condition got worse, several priests came by to conduct exorcisms on Robbie. During these ceremonies, Robbie's bedroom would drop in temperature and become freezing cold. In an attempt to rid the demon from Robbie, The priest performed several exorcisms, but failed every time. They even gathered several different priests from different religions to try and drive the possession out, but it was no use. The demon seemed like it would control Robbie for the rest of his life. Not until years later, a group of Jesuits in a St. Louis hospital finally delivered Robbie from his possession. The Jesuits claimed an incredibly loud boom shook the room at the exact moment when the demon left Robbie's body. It sounded like a massive thunderclap surrounding his bed. After this successful exorcism, Robbie went on to live a normal life. He actually got a job as an engineer making parts for the Apollo space program. He also married and had children. And he later died of a stroke in 2017 at the age of 85. As Richard continued hearing about these stories, he became more and more interested in the subject of possession and the line between scientific study and the study of demonic attacks slowly blurred. After his four-year residency, he took an academic position as an attending psychiatrist at Cornell Hospital in Westchester. He began working with patients with severe borderline personality disorders. Many were extremely troubled and had a long history of abuse. He also dove into research on new interviewing methods, and his work as an academic psychiatrist began to take shape. But just as he dove into his studies... He heard a knock on the front door, and it was a man dressed in religious garb. He was known as Father Jacques, and he was one of the few real exorcists in the world.
1: I went into my conversation with this priest a little on the skeptical side, and somewhat to my surprise, he liked that. He said, well, if we didn't think you were skeptical, Dr. Gallagher, we wouldn't have wanted to use you. Well, I guess he had heard about me, and that's, that's why he came to ask my opinion
0: father Jacques wanted Richard to evaluate a woman he believed was afflicted by demonic oppression he was hoping that Richard would give his advice but Richard warned that he was highly skeptical of demons and the priest told him that's exactly why he was perfect for the job Richard was worried at first but eventually he accepted the offer and the priest brought the woman into his office her name was Maria and she lived a perfectly normal life except for one thing at night, while she laid in bed, an invisible energy would begin beating her. She would try to shield herself, but the blows would keep coming from nowhere. Her husband Alejandro would watch in horror as something terrorized his wife beside him. He felt helpless as he watched his wife being beaten by something he couldn't see or understand. And by the next morning, her body would be covered in large dark bruises. Because the couple were extremely devout Catholics, they first thought Maria was being targeted by the devil or someone had put a curse on her. But Richard remembered his job. He was supposed to analyze what was happening from a scientific point of view, and not a religious one. At first, he thought maybe the husband was abusing his wife, and they were trying to cover it up by lying and saying it was paranormal activity. But Alejandro seemed like a gentleman, and why would he go out of his way to contact a priest and a doctor about the situation if he was truly abusing his wife? So Richard conducted several medical tests and nothing stood out. He thought it might have been a condition where stress can result in bruises forming on the body, but Maria was mentally healthy. And after a few days of studying her, Richard was stumped. He couldn't find any psychiatric or medical reason for Maria's affliction. When he told the priest this, he wasn't surprised.
1: About a woman who was claiming that she was beat up by invisible forces. She would even have these bruises spontaneously appear. She appeared to me to be completely sane. And I'd never seen a case like that before. It didn't seem to be explainable on the basis of any medical or psychiatric pathology. She and her husband were devout Catholics, and they believed it was kind of uh, evil spirits. I didn't have a great deal of interest in getting involved in this, but, you know, as a physician, I really don't like the idea of seeing somebody in tremendous pain or tremendous confusion. I was asked to comment whether there could be any psychiatric illness, whether she was being abused, whether this was her imagination, etc. And I had to conclude that there was no medical reason why this would happen. I felt that she was being attacked because, in fact, she was a very holy person.
0: Eventually, after deliverance prayers and other spiritual ceremonies, the strange beatings slowed down. And then they just stopped altogether. It was a curious case, but it didn't convince Richard of anything. But from this moment on, Richard began to see how important it was to have a medical professional's input in these cases. There was a fine line between the psychologically disturbed and the demonically possessed with the cases he came across. And many times it was difficult to see the difference.
1: I believe in science. I trained at an American medical school. I use scientific, the results of scientific studies, every day of my life. I believe in evolution. I believe in the Big Bang. I believe in quantum theory. I just have had a rare, window or a rare opportunity to study these things a little more rigorously than most doctors would have
0: with time it became more clear why demons targeted specific people especially when richard later met a man named stan stan was a tall middle-aged man from the pacific northwest of the us he was a smart man that worked in the technical field he was well composed and didn't seem like he was afflicted by a mental disorder stan's wife told richard about what was going on and his case wasn't that different from Maria's. They explained that Stan would be beaten, scratched, and choked by an invisible entity. The figures that attacked him always went for his head, neck, and face. They even brought Richard photos of the scratches and cuts along Stan's legs and chest. Deep gashes covered his body, and he began fearing for his life. At first thought, Richard thought Stan was possibly harming himself, as this was a rational explanation. But both Stan and his wife denied it, and none of the other priests had thought he was a troubled man or a liar. As Richard dove into his research and medical testing, he couldn't figure out what was wrong with Stan. He even searched through Stan's history and interviewed friends and family, but he came up with nothing. When he asked Stan about his past, he claimed that he was a spiritual man, and he had done a lot of soul searching through the years, and he even studied a variety of religions, especially Islam. But as richard dug a bit further stan finally confessed to richard a dark secret he had been keeping for a long time throughout his years of searching for a religion he came across many different faiths he even learned a bit of Hebrew so he could learn parts of the bible in its original form but during these years of trying to find but during these years of trying to find a suitable religion he ended up falling into satanic worship when he was a young man he spent several weeks participating and he even promised his soul to Satan as a trade for favors and experiences. Immediately, Richard knew this was potentially the cause for his affliction. In the case of Maria, she was punished for how loyal she was to God. But in the case of Stan, he was terrorized by demons because he had bargained with the devil. Once the door has been opened, it's almost impossible to close. After they gave Stan counseling and religious help, Father Jacques continued to introduce Richard to various cases throughout the years. He was surprised at how many there were, and he had no idea so many people were allegedly afflicted by demonic attacks. And at the time, Jacques was one of the most respected priests in the area of exorcisms, and he and Richard become good friends. And the more Richard followed him around the country, the more he was exposed to diabolical possessions. Many skeptics still believed them to be stories for movies and tabloids, but Richard began seeing the true nature Of demonic possession and he soon had to make a decision his career had focused more and more on possessions in the previous months and he couldn't deny that the subject interested him even though this wasn't a pathway of science he had learned about in school he felt it was his calling and even though the topic was taboo in the field of science he couldn't deny that there were people out there who needed his help so he began putting more and more time and effort into possessions and assisting his friend father jacques And soon enough, he encountered one of the most intense demonic possessions of his entire life. One that would change his worldview forever.
1: With a possession, you have to have, at least in the Catholic Church, what is called moral certainty. And there are very strict criteria and it really depends on evidence. The essence of a possession is a person going into a trance, and a demonic sounding voice coming out of them. (laughs) Attacking the people, uh, attacking religion, usually using very crude and violent language. Uh, Like, leave her alone, she's ours, this type of thing. Superhuman strength, knowing secrets of people, that a human being could never know otherwise.
0: So this leads us to the story of Julia, also known as the Satanic Queen. The night before Richard had even met the woman, strange things began happening in his own house. He lived with his family and his three pets, a bulldog and two cats, and on any ordinary night, the cats would curl up next to each other at the foot of his bed. But on this night around 3 a.m loud screeching sounds woke up richard and his wife and they looked down at the floor where the two cats wrestled and clawed at each other with violence that they had never seen before richard and his wife separated the two and put them in two different rooms but they could still hear the cats growling and meowing in anger richard and his wife thought that maybe they had just gotten into some bad food but they shrugged it off and went back to sleep The next morning, Father Jacques knocked on their front door, and with him, he brought along Julia, who wore a dark purple blouse and dark pants, and her hair was dyed black. Richard guessed the woman was in her thirties or early forties. Around her eyes, she wore black makeup that wrapped around to her temples. This was the style that was worn by her colt. Julia looked up at Richard and asked, How'd you like those cats last night? Richard was shocked that she knew what had happened the night before. She only stood there, smug and proud of herself, and she gave Richard a smile and a wink. Father Jacques brought her by because he wanted to get Richard's opinion on her, but he warned him that she wasn't like the others. He also told Richard that a previous psychologist's wife had already kicked Julia out of their house because their cat had gone berserk and tore up the living room couch. Richard hesitated, but Father Jacques insisted that Julia needed their help. She was a unique case. And she was a true Satanist. Not only that, she was a high priestess in her church. And the other cult members had sent Father Jacques threats because they knew he was performing exorcisms on Julia. Father Jacques warned Richard that since she held such a high position of power in the Church of Satan, she might be given certain abilities or privileges. He warned that Satan can give his most devout followers psychic abilities and their conscious states. He said that these abilities were uncommon, and Richard wasn't sure what to believe. But early on, Richard could tell that Julia was a rare case. Throughout their discussions together, Julia always talked about how she wanted to be in tune with the natural world. This was one of the main reasons she claimed she was a Satanist. And she argued that conventional religions were unnatural, and she loathed the Christian faith and she respected Richard as a man of science more than she respected the priests. The more they talked, she began opening up to Richard until she calmly admitted that she was possessed. She was a devout follower of Satan, and she wasn't surprised the devil had taken control of her. And when Richard asked her why she thought she'd become possessed, she wasn't exactly sure. She didn't know the reason, but she admitted that she didn't want to be possessed anymore. She was also afraid of admitting that to her fellow cult members because she thought they would disown her so she had made up a lie about infiltrating the church, but really she just wanted help with her possession. Previously, she had bounced between a few priests and physicians before being taken to Richard. When she talked about one of the previous Jesuit priests that she talked with over the phone, she said he thought her thinking was off and something was not right about her. He also said he couldn't give his full opinion over the phone, and as she told Richard about her previous experiences, Julia casually mentioned the priest's red curtains. Richard interrupted her and asked how she knew his curtains were red if they only talked on the phone. Julia laughed and after ignoring the question for a moment, she eventually explained that she had a power called remote viewing. She could see things even if she wasn't there. At first, Richard thought this was absurd, but he let her continue. Julia also claimed that she had the power to wreak havoc in places, even when she was far away. And Richard thought about his cat's outburst from the other night. Even though her claims were absurd, Richard slowly began believing her, especially when strange things kept happening.
1: And once I was on the telephone line, on a landline in this case, with the other exorcist. Now remember, Julia was not on the phone conversation. This was not a conference call or anything. We actually knew where she was at the time. She was about a thousand miles away. And uh, that same voice came in over the phone line said the same kind of thing. She's ours, leave her alone. So I said to the priest, I said, did you hear that? And he said to me, yeah, the evil spirit can even interrupt our phone conversation, which I found pretty remarkable. It was pretty creepy, but I also found it pretty remarkable. She was um, completely demonically possessed.
0: He also reminded Julia that he wasn't her physician. He was only assisting Father Jacques and he had no interest in medicating her or putting her in a hospital. All he wanted to do is explore her beliefs and learn more about her. Julia respected his honesty, so their sessions continued, but on one condition. Richard told Julia not to mess with him or his family, and she agreed. She wasn't willing to cut ties with her satanic cult completely, but she wanted more exorcisms, so she was willing to keep up with the sessions. After several sessions over the months, other psychologists believe that Julia didn't have a medical affliction, but that there were signs of a personality disorder. But still, there was no explanations for the paranormal events that seemed to follow her everywhere. One day, Julia, Richard, and Father Jacques were out driving, looking for a venue to perform their next exorcism. As he drove down the road, Jacques explained that he would be the assisting exorcist, and he told Richard he would meet the chief exorcist soon when suddenly a loud voice cut into the conversation, although the voice came from Julia's mouth. It definitely wasn't hers. It had a dark, raspy ring to it, and it told the men to leave Julia alone, and it called Father Jacques a stupid monkey priest. In a low, curdling voice, it kept talking for several more minutes, making threats and condemning the priest. As Richard looked into the back seat, Julia looked like her soul had abandoned her body, and something else had taken control. When the trance was over, Julia returned, and she put her head in her hands and asked where she was, as she had no memory from the last half hour. It was moments like these that convinced Richard something else was at play. Julia seemed like a smart woman who genuinely needed help, but he still needed to get to know her better. Later, when he asked about her satanic cult, she took pride in her position of the High Priestess, and she claimed she had more supernatural powers that she would show to Richard soon. Satan had given her these powers, and in turn, she devoted her life to Satan. She saw it as a fair trade. She claimed that beyond her powers of remote viewing, she also had the ability to know things she shouldn't know, and she called this ability hidden knowledge. As an example, she caught Richard's attention when she casually told him, that his mother had died of ovarian cancer. There was no way that Julia could have known this without a very specific source, and Richard had no idea how she had gotten a hold of this information. According to Richard, this hidden knowledge is along the same lines as people speaking in foreign languages that they don't know, and it's one of the telltale signs of possession. From the knowledge of the cats fighting to the demonic voice in the car, and the knowledge of how his mother died, Richard became convinced that this case was something beyond a mental or physical illness. He couldn't deny it any longer, and he didn't know what he had just got himself into. Right as he began to fear Julia as some strange demonic being, she began revealing her vulnerable human side. During one session, she told him she was scared and she was suffering, and she was finally ready to tell him her whole story. Before we get into Julia's past, I just want to put a trigger warning out there. We'll be talking about sexual abuse, suicide, abortion, among other things. So if any of this bothers you, I would just suggest that you skip ahead. Julia grew up as a devout Catholic and even went to private Catholic school, but her faith always seemed like a joke to her. When she was young, her life at home was rough, but she never went into detail about her parents. As she grew into her teen years, one of the local priests grew close to her, and one day behind closed doors, he molested her. She admitted that she first enjoyed it, until she later understood what sex meant as an adult. The priest was later kicked out of the church years later, and Julia heard he might have killed himself. Ever since she was molested, she grew disgusted with the church, and as she distanced herself from the faith, she found a group of local Satanists. Richard noticed how she tiptoed around her childhood years, but Richard didn't press any further. He was only glad she was finally opening up to him, and he thought that maybe Julia joined the Satanists because she was looking for somewhere she would belong. They might have acted as a type of family to her when her real one had failed her. When she met with the other Satanists, she quickly fell in love with the cult's leader named Daniel, and she liked him because he seemed a bit dangerous, and as the relationship went on, she dove into the idea of pleasure. According to her, pleasure was the true meaning of Satanism. The same attraction to danger and pleasure with Daniel, she also found in the Church of Satan, and the search for pleasure was the ultimate goal. Soon enough, they made her their queen. She called herself Queen Lilith, named after a female figure in mythology known for seducing men. She also called herself the Queen of Voluptuous Delights. In the satanic cult, sex was an important aspect of their search for pleasure, The male cultists often used the women for sex and then quickly moved on. As Julia fell deeper into the cult, she developed a taste for kinkier taboo sex. They had frequent orgies with other cult members, and she enjoyed the fact that the other men wanted to have sex with her. They also held ceremonies called black masses, where sex was an important part of the rituals. They would dress in satanic garbs, use stolen Eucharist, and pray to Satan during these ceremonies. Daniel ran the ceremonies and Julia saw him as a leader at first, but as time went on she began seeing the awful sides of him. According to Julia, she came across a series of vile messages that he wrote to a friend, and she began seeing him as an unintelligent narcissist, and the distance between them grew. And Julia thought that her age might have also had something to do with it as well. She admitted to Richard that she was the colt's main breeder, and they would impregnate Julia regularly. Then they would get one of the members, a physician's assistant, to perform an abortion. They would allegedly use the dead fetus as an offering during their ceremonies. If she agreed to go along with it, Julia was promised a high status in the church, and she felt honored to do it. Although there is no evidence that these rituals took place, Richard had heard similar stories from other sources. But Julia told him that they no longer used dead fetuses for their ceremonies as far as she knew. Regardless, she wasn't bothered by the rituals. She was more concerned with Daniel's love that seemed to fade away, and she feared he no longer loved her. It had been the first time in her life she felt special and it was slipping away, and she began feeling expendable. As she talked with Richard, her feelings went back and forth. One moment she would loathe the cult and wanted to accept God into her life again, and next she would talk about how she missed being a part of the satanic lifestyle. Richard saw this as a trait of a personality disorder. He also thought that maybe she wanted to get rid of her possession and also return to the cult. Either way, she wanted to continue on with her exorcisms. So Richard eventually met the chief exorcist, known as Father A. He was a strict and straightforward man, and he was also one of the most experienced exorcists at the time. He had gained so much popularity in the church that Julius Colt had named him their number one enemy. During Richard and Julia's meetings, Julia would often use her remote viewing ability and tell Richard how she could see him. She could tell him what he was wearing, and Richard would call Father A on the phone to confirm. She could also sense when he was in pain, and Richard wondered if she was the one who caused his pain. As her sessions began to wind down, Julia prepared for more exorcisms. Richard wasn't allowed to attend. One night, as he watched Julia, Father Jacques, and Father A get into the car to head to the exorcism, Julia fell into another demonic trance. For the whole ride, she taunted the priests and bragged about how the demon would never leave her, that she was under Satan's control and there was nothing they could do about it. The dark voice said the usual things, but this time something was different. As he drove down the road, the reality became distorted. The air around the vehicle began to flicker, and spirits began to appear around the car. They flashed in front of the windshield for only a moment and then disappeared. There were dark entities that appeared like clouds of smoke. Soon the whole car began to rumble, and the electricity in the car began to cut out, and the headlights eventually went dark. The lights on the dashboard failed, and the car rolled down the road in complete darkness. Father A slammed on the brakes, and the car veered into a small ditch on the side of the road, as he composed himself and looked into the back seat. Julia wore a smirk across her face. With time, Julia's soul returned. Her trance ended and the car electronics came back to life. A few weeks after the incident, they tried another exorcism session in the late fall. A team of eight people met at Father Jacques Parish. They gathered privately in a small chapel. Julia showed up a half hour late. Some thought she might have been under the influence, but they couldn't know for sure julia hesitated to join them at first but eventually signed the forms before beginning the ritual when she sat down in the chair they began the ceremony and a dark trance immediately came over julia a dark energy erupted inside the room and the demonic voice spit vile insults at everyone in sight again it claimed that it would never leave julia's body and their efforts were useless most of the insults were directed at father a and this went on for nearly two hours The dark voice also targeted the two nuns in the room calling them whores and sluts. Occasionally they had to restrain her in her chair under the command of Father A. She would lash out and convulse as Father A said his prayers. He continued on the best he could while she shouted curses through his prayers. As the session went on, the team was shocked at how Julia had maintained so much energy as she contorted and lashed out at the group. But they reminded themselves that the power of the devil was behind her. This wasn't the energy and the strength of an ordinary woman. At about halfway through the session, something incredible happened. Julia began levitating. All eight of the team members witnessed Julia rise out of her chair, a foot into the air. Several of the larger men grabbed onto her and pulled her down. They believed she would have kept rising all the way to the ceiling if they didn't hold onto her. As they brought her back to the chair, Father Ace splashed holy water on her skin, and the demon's voice yelled out in pain. As the water made contact with her skin, it sizzled and popped. She also began screeching out words in Latin as the room became an inferno of heat. One of the team members said it was like standing next to a boiler at maximum strength. Father A told Richard that he felt like he was standing at the gates of hell. Julia's energy was so shocking that both Father A and Father Jacques admitted that they had never seen anything like it. As the ceremony ended, Julia fell out of her trance. And just like before, she couldn't remember anything from the last two hours. After this very intense session, Julia refused to take part in any more exorcisms. The priest told her she could always try again if she wanted, and no one was sure exactly why she didn't want to continue. Richard suspected that she was deathly afraid of breaking away from her cult, especially Daniel. She knew they treated members who left the cult poorly, and she wasn't ready to deal with the consequences. She told a story where they once locked her in a box for hours as punishment for something she had done. She also feared the punishment from Satan himself. Occasionally she would feel burning sensations across her skin, and she believed that this was the fire of hell attacking her. Richard believed that Julia needed to disconnect entirely from the cult if she was ever going to be delivered, but she wasn't prepared to do that. She would rather live under the control of demonic possession than try to leave the abusive cult community. Several months later, Richard and Father Jacques visited Julia in her southern hometown. She still had no interest in continuing her exorcisms, but they wished her the best. They told her if she changed her mind, they were ready to help her. After the short meeting, they returned home by plane. Meanwhile, Richard's wife got a phone call from someone claiming to be a priest. They told her that Richard had been in a serious car accident and was in critical condition. So Richard's wife panicked and called several hospitals to try and find him. It wasn't until a few hours later that Richard called his wife from a New York airport and told her that he was fine. Richard suspected that the cultists were trying to terrorize his family. A year later, Richard called Julia to see how she was doing. And to his surprise, she told him she had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. She also wished she could be free of her demonic possession before she died. But despite their conversation, they'd never heard from Julia ever again. Father Jacques tried to reach out to her several times, but he eventually passed away. Richard was never certain if Julia was still alive or not, but he knew her story of possession and her struggle between spiritual worlds would live on and her impact on Richard would forever shape the way he analyzed and treated demonic possessions. Richard claims that beliefs in a spiritual world and attacks by evil entities is more mainstream than many think. Large majorities around the world believe in these spiritual realms and events. In 2012, a public policy polling survey showed that 57% of Americans believe in demonic attacks on humans. Many skeptics believe that these attacks are physical illnesses or psychological disorders. But Richard believes there's a fine line between a scientific explanation and a spiritual one.
1: These are not fringe beliefs. And then there are countries around the world where uh, Haiti, Madagascar, for instance, everybody in the country believes in the devil and everybody believes in possessions. And then throughout history, most cultures, certainly most major religions, they've always had a belief. In fact, they have an official belief in evil spirits and the ability of evil spirits occasionally to attack people. Critics often ask for uh, a ludicrous level of, quote, proof. You can't do lab experiments. And in my experience, many critics, they've never seen a genuine case. They've never even spoken to an official exorcist. I don't think that's very scientific of them. Many, many people in the mental health field are more open to healthy spirituality than they were in the past. We have, I think, moved past an era heavily influenced by Freud's atheism where psychiatry was actually hostile to religion and spirituality. I don't want to prevent people who need psychiatric help from getting it. But then there are these rare cases No amount of medical help is going to deliver them of an evil spirit. There are definite criteria. There's definite evidence, although the evidence, while massive throughout history, is of an historical nature. If that's not good enough for you, well, you know, you're never really going to be able to understand this field.
0: Richard has examined over 25,000 patients during his career and he admits that it's extremely rare to come across a genuine case of possession. They're difficult to find and even more difficult to prove. The only cases he came across that he believed were real possessions were either recommended to him by priests or the patients reached out to him directly. He hadn't stumbled on any in his day-to-day work as a physician, and today he still assists priests with people who are demonically possessed. Richard is an advisor for the International Association of Exorcists, which was formally recognized by Pope Francis in 2014. He is also a board-certified psychiatrist and currently teaches at Columbia University and New York Medical College. As a rational, highly educated man, he realizes the taboo nature of possessions. He knows that many of his peers don't believe in demonic attacks, but it was cases like Julia's that convinced him. Her sinister journey of satanic rituals, breeding, and possession Slowly changed him from a skeptic to a believer, and eventually a believer to an expert. And to this day he continues to ride the line between scientific reality and the mysterious world of the paranormal. Doctor Richard Gallagher is, is an individual who after studying this case I'm gonna reach out to because I think I could we could do a really, really interesting interview with him here on Lights Out. Oh, definitely. I'm seeing that he's done interviews before on podcasts. Um, so I'm going to definitely reach out to him because I'd love to talk to him in more detail about this case and also just about investigating demonic possessions in general. Because I think it's very rare that you hear of such a highly educated individual like Dr. Gallagher who also takes demonic possessions so seriously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether you're a skeptic or a believer when it comes to demons, I think. Some of these entities have different names depending on what your belief system is, right? Like, I don't necessarily believe that these are demons like they are described in the Bible or necessarily that they come from hell, right? Mm -hmm. Because to believe in heaven and hell means you believe in religious doctrine in in some way. Like, you believe in the Bible in some way, shape, or form. Right, so it doesn't necessarily mean that it was Lucifer, himself that was possessing Julia or anyone in general. It could have just been an evil entity or right, something like that. Right. Well it made me think about my conversation with Terry Huberman, the psychic medium I had on here a few weeks ago, and just we were talking about how people have the ability to conjure positive and conjure negative energy and entities to you to yourself through your actions and what you do. And I think in Julia's case, just from the amount of negative actions she was taking, that it makes sense that after a certain amount of time, that if you really believe in these things that you're doing, and you really believe in Satan, and you believe in sort of the evil that surrounds it, that you could, in fact, conjure up Mm -hmm. demons or negative entities that have this negative or dark energy with the ability to possess you Mm -hmm. in this way it's almost like manifestation right yeah manifestation of evil entities i mean if you believe in that then could you create it yeah that's possible and i think everybody in the world especially people of religious faith, all have you know sort of their explanation for demons or or evil entities or negative uh, energy and i think everybody attaches a different name based upon their religious doctrine story and i i don't subscribe to any religion anymore and you know the way that i would describe it is just some sort of dark energy maybe some otherworldly being for all we know i mean it could there could be this other realm that exists where there's it's just full of evil entities i mean for all i know that could exist yeah just like there could be a realm a spiritual realm that exists where there's you know light beings or positive beings angels whatever you want to call it i mean it's just angels demons is just a name put onto something we don't fully understand right right right. but what i find interesting is in this story the catholic church had an influence during the exorcism like for an example when they splashed the holy water on her like it sizzled her skin and yeah and that's interesting to me that that part is like Difficult because is it the act of holy water? Is it the act of prayers? Or maybe there's what I'm starting to sort of believe. I guess you could say is that you know there's positive energy being created by the things that the priests are doing, mm-hmm. and whether it's actually an act of God is one thing, but it could just be counteracting the negative energy with positive energy and these positive things, True. these positive words are saying. You know these affirmations, things like that. That perhaps that is in fact combating with the negative energy. Yeah. And you know the holy water. You know, for all we know, blessing things could be a real thing. Prayers could be a real thing. It could just be the way that it works. I think is the debatable part, right? Yeah. The the system of it definitely. And that's where, you know, Doctor Gallagher. He he's a a devout Catholic. He believes in the Catholic faith. So his perspective on it is going to be. Uh, kind of skewed a certain way because i mean a catholic's going to believe what the catholic faith teaches they believe that this is an act of god that god's combating the demons and and the evil evil spirits but in fact it could be actually the priests are generating i guess you could say or manifesting whatever you want to call it this positive energy or this positive entity or maybe it's even a creator or something like that in order to combat this evil spirit so it just really i think it just really depends on what you believe yeah and i don't necessarily think there's any necessarily right way to do it because it all face cultures have stories of Mm -hmm. possession and, and demons and things like that i think it just really is i mean it's it comes down to the belief in good versus evil do you believe that evil exists if you do then you believe that you know good exists as well and it's the classic battle between the two yeah it is going back thousands of years so i think it's it's just really up to interpretation of how you view these things but i do believe these things are real i do think that there is situations beyond mental illness that are unexplainable Mm. to us because we don't understand this this paranormal realm this other you know this world that exists beyond ours we don't understand or we can't measure it so there are these things that happen that many people just brush off as you know oh that's just you know nonsense there's actually a scientific uh, explanation for it but as we've seen in so many not just possession cases and hauntings but even talking about ufos and ufo abductions and things like that there's there's clearly this other world that we can't see that we're not necessarily tapped into some people are tapped into it Uh clearly when you talk about mediums and things like that or Uh, People that have psychic abilities, but at the same time, it's like I don't think anybody can fully understand it or fully explain I don't think there's any way we can possibly know that right how it really works so we just do our best as human beings to rationalize these things and Mm. provide some explanation That makes sense in the context of what you believe whether that's being a Catholic a Christian uh, being a part of the Islamic faith or a Buddhist and everybody's got their sort of you know flavor and including Satanists. I mean, in in this particular story, it's kind of grouping Satanists all together. But I mean, you have the the Church of Satan. You have the Satanic Temple. Two very different things. Yeah, very different. You know, the Satanic Temple. They're they don't even believe that Satan is real or Satan's a real thing. It's more right. of a symbol of right. of of really like freedom and religious freedom. And and then in a the Church of Satan is different. Then there's you know Anton levey and his flavor of Satanism so and then there's just playing out devil worshipers and people and this is what this cult seemed like to me was this is a very mm-hmm. evil influence cult that does these evil acts in order to hopefully gain power right. from the devil uh, in order to do have certain powers and things like that um, yeah so that, again all faiths have different branches off of mm-hmm. it right so everybody's got a different way of looking at it but I do believe in the the idea of possession I do think that if you do enough evil things that you can absolutely be possessed by something evil within yeah and something evil within can take over your your psyche and your ability to function as a normal human being absolutely these things can happen I mean there's so many cases like this. I mean evidence yeah there's a lot of similarities um, but in this case and in particular was eight people during the exorcism witnessed levitation which tells me there was a lot of negative energy being manifested there right right you know so and especially i think there is something to say about taunting it mm-hmm. and sort of provoking the the evil entity or, or energy if you provoke it then it can have an adverse reaction to it Yeah. you know it's like it's just like anything else in life. everything has a cause and effect right and i think in these types of cases there's a cause and then there's an effect of that of that action that's taken and that's when Things like levitation or things getting thrown across the room mm-hmm. or the speaking in tongues or Latin is, is very interesting to me because that seems to be a recurring yeah. theme of like, how do these people all of a sudden know these Latin words and uh-huh. sayings? And, and that, that to me is very interesting and is still a mystery. Right. Uh, like, why is it that? Why is it not, you know, why don't they say it in some other language mm-hmm. or just even gibberish, you know, just right. some... Unknown language. Um, it takes some intelligence to speak that language, right? And stuff, right. So, so it's like, what's actually speaking? Is it? Right. Is it really some other entity that uses has this sort uh-huh. of Latin knowledge? I don't know. It's it. Well, really it seems weird. that way because the, the individual's voice changes, and you know their their tone and everything is not themselves. Like almost like there's an entity inside of them speaking through them. Yeah. So it's know? like, what is that? Yeah what is that is it is it actually of uh some sort of spiritual entity or is it is this just a manifestation that has garnered enough energy that's ultimately exploding uh it, it's it's a really interesting it one. is i'd love to i'd love to dive into this with dr gallagher so i'm gonna That'd i'm gonna reach awesome. out to him and i'd love to have this discussion with him because he seems like a very very he's very open-minded to yeah. all this and very well-spoken yeah yeah exactly and i mean he clearly knows what he's doing and he's a clearly a very intelligent individual so it's it's hard to just like brush him off and be like oh he's just yeah you know he's just uh he's just another one of those paranormal believers right and, and i think that's and we're starting to see this just in mainstream uh culture and society of People are starting to take the paranormal more seriously and people are starting to Science is starting to catch up with a lot of the paranormal phenomena. I mean, we've seen it with UFOs we've seen it with even spirits in in a way and Things are we're starting to learn more about how these things work and as technology progresses Maybe it will help us unlock the the keys or the tools that we need in order to observe this phenomena uh, in a more You know scientific way where we can record and try to research it more i mean just the things that are happening at places like skinwalker ranch where all the anomalies and all the weird things happening there's radiation there's all these weird and bizarre things and poltergeist activity i mean it's just there's something more going on here oh yeah i don't think i think it's very hard to just deny that this none of this stuff is real at this point but I mean, at the end of the day, what do I know, right? I mean, I, It's not like I have had an abundance of paranormal activity happen to me. Certainly not in this sort of situation where I've been possessed or, you know, taken over. And, and it's, it's funny because growing up, Joel and I were taught and told that, you know, you fill your, your head with negative things and, I mean... Pretty much, most of the things in this room would <laughs> would pretty much uh, scare. Yeah, uh, most of our Sunday school teachers, <laughs> I would say, and our pastors, and honestly, our parents right now, if they saw this room, they'd yeah, be, they'd be very uncomfortable in right. here. Because I, I think it's a good thing they don't watch our our stuff. I know, right? So. I mean, we've got animal skulls and things like that mm-hmm. in here, and I mean, I think if you surround yourself with this, but also allow it to affect you, and I think that's where it does come down to the individual and it comes down to your ability to block these things out and not focus. Like if you hone in on it and you try to harness and manifest these sort of evil things, Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a lot of, you know, fictional things around us from the conjuring universe and things like that. But I think if you wholeheartedly believe in it and you practice what you preach, I guess you should say that I think eventually it could have an effect on you. But, for those of us like Joel and I, who we look at this from a very sort of positive perspective yeah. and you know, we don't carry this into our, we don't carry the show and the the topics we cover into our daily lives. As much as it's intriguing to us and mm-hmm. intriguing to you, it's not like we're, we obsess over it and no. it's our life and we live it and we're trying to be these dark individuals that live <laughs> no. in this, live in this darkness Yeah, uh, that is the lights out podcast. But right. Rather, we're more curious and interested in these stories and these cases, and and trying to understand them better and understand this other side of the world that many people just stay away from because they're scared or it's mm-hmm. they're worried about being possessed, right? right? Yeah. They're worried about it the the devil, you know, somehow coming through these different things <laughs> yeah. and then ultimately taking over your life. But I but I I believe that we're all strong enough mm-hmm. and we all have the free will and willpower to to lead our life in the way that we want to and that you can fully dive into this stuff and walk away from it yeah, and live a completely normal and positive life. It's just all about what you put out there is what you get back. Exactly. And that's my lesson for today. Well said. <laughs> but that wraps up today's episode for Lights Out. Hopefully you enjoyed this one. I know we sure did. Let us know your thoughts in the, in the comments uh, below if you're watching on YouTube or let us know on social media, at lights out Casts, We're on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok as well. If you haven't checked us out on TikTok, we have a bunch of really cool clips on there. But yeah, let us know your thoughts on especially the possession of Julia as well as the nun story too. That one's uh, really interesting. I'm pretty sure the nun from The Conjuring was sort of based on on that uh, possession story as that makes well. sense um it does make sense and I'm, i've got the nun staring at me behind <laughs> yeah. behind the camera here i have a canvas painting of, of of her behind me but which just adds to just helps me kind of stay in this uh, <laughs> yeah. spooky dark space while we're recording but but yeah make sure you're following us on spotify subscribed on youtube we really appreciate it and we will see you guys next time until then lights out everybody